the thing about this cat, I think, is it knew that. It was keeping this methodical line, which made it completely invisible from the farms and the fair mets. The dogs would never have seen it. That's the first question. Did you take a photo? And so it immediately puts you on the defensive, because when you say no, people say, well, it didn't happen. You're on the back foot of what's your little story. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome, everyone. We have reached episode 70 of Big Cat Conversations. To mark this milestone of sorts, we have a special guest, because on the line from India, we have conservation scientist Sanjay Gubi, who is going to discuss his experience in studying leopards for over 10 years now, especially in the state of Karnataka, which is in mid-southwest India. Sanjay is a senior scientist with the Nature Conservation Foundation. He advises politicians on wildlife policy. He works directly with community groups to help them care for their local wildlife, and he is author of six books and many academic papers on aspects of nature conservation and large mammals and carnivores. He spends much of his time in the outdoors tracking and studying leopards and their habitats directly, and that, for me, is what brings so much practical wisdom to his latest book on leopards. So, Leopard Diaries, The Rosette in India, is highly recommended, and we'll hear snippets related to the book over the next hour's discussion. Sanjay, thanks so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to join uh, the Big Cat Conversations. Splendid to have you as part of the podcast, Sanjay. And just to clarify for our listeners, we are not going to seek your views on the British encounters with big cats, because you would be just too fresh to that, and it would be unfair. So our main interest is hearing about how leopards are studied in India, to learn about aspects of their behaviour with you, and to hear how people coexist with them in parts of India. And before we get stuck into that, it'd be nice to have a very quick resume about your career in wildlife issues, and could you tell us how you became focused on tigers and then leopards? I have been interested in wildlife conservation since my high school days. I was part of the scouting movement, and they would take us out I loved camping in the outdoors. I started watching birds. That led me later into large mammal conservation, and my interest in large mammal conservation grew. If you're in India, it's very natural that with large mammals, you you get fascinated by animals like wildlife, like tigers and uh, big cats like leopards. That's how I started with tiger conservation work. I did my engineering degree. But uh, wildlife was always my passion. So later, you know, I joined, I quit my career as an engineer and joined wildlife conservation as a full-time job. More than a job, actually. (laughs) I can't call it as a job. I did my master's at uh, DICE, Durrell Institute of Conservation and Ecology at University of Kent in Canterbury, and later my PhD on leopards. So what motivated you to write the books and... What sort of distinctions do you note between tigers and leopards? My first book, uh, Second Nature, Saving Tiger Landscapes in the 21st Century, is about the work, the conservation, on-ground conservation work we have done trying to save landscapes and habitats for tigers in the state of Karnataka. For a very long time, I felt that there was a need to explain to general public and everybody who's interested in wildlife about how does conservation work in the real world, you know. You study animals or wildlife, you study tigers or elephants or leopards or lions or any other animal, but what entails in actually saving them, trying to save them, trying to get um, security to the land tenure for our wildlife species is a completely different ballgame altogether. So those experiences from the field for over 20 years is what I wanted to bring to the reader in my first book, Second Nature, Saving Tiger Landscapes in the 21st Century. But when I started uh, studying leopards as an academic interest, but more importantly, I come from area where we were born and brought up in leopard habitats. So leopards were 
surely everywhere, though we didn't notice them. Hmm. Uh, but I took it up as an academic uh, subject when I thought, okay, I have to do a, a doctoral thesis now. And, and I was always interested in large cats. And as I said earlier, I came from leopard country. I was born in the Deccan Plateau and almost grew up in everywhere in Deccan Plateau. Yeah, that's where my interest in leopards also started, and I picked it up as an academic subject. Before we move on and hear about the book, could we just hear about the landscape of your region? Could we just hear a bit about the Karnataka landscape? Karnataka has two distinct landscapes. One is the Western Ghats, the forest which everybody reads about. It's one of the biodiversity hotspots in the world. It's got a variety of habitats like dry deciduous forest, moist deciduous forest, evergreen, semi-evergreen, climax elevation grasslands. Like in the in the Scottish Highlands, you'll see some grasslands even in the Western Ghats. The other part, the, the dry plains of rocky outcrops and scrub forests, which are extremely interesting, very rich in biodiversity. And the rocky outcrops, which are part of the Deccan Plateau, which runs both in, in other states as well, in Tamil Nadu and Andhra and some parts of central India, is a very fascinating place. You know, it's born out of volcanic eruptions and you'll see huge gumdrops, you know, gumdrops kind of rock formations. And some of it you'll see it in southern Africa, actually, because India and southern Africa were perhaps a part of the Gondwana land and uh, they share similar habitat and similar biodiversity even today. So it's a beautiful landscape, has got some diverse um, vegetation as well, like dry evergreen forests, woodland savanna habitat, some amount of grasslands. Very fascinating, but the rocky outcrops, I think, uh, would uh, steal the show. And we'll talk about the pressures on Karnataka, the road building and development pressures a bit later on. But if we could now turn to the book, Leopard Diaries, and uh, congratulations on it. It really is a wonderful and informative read. I've heard you say in the media, I think, in the India media, that you thought it was so important to have plenty of goosebump moments. Well, big cats, you know, tend to give us goosebump moments. And one of the ones which is a key goosebump moment for me was about when you were over a leopard or over lepers generally, when you examine them, when they're sedated, when they're tranquilized, and you've got to check them over and maybe radio collar them or check a radio collar. And you do things like feel their pads and you sort of sense their breath and their condition from that. Now, can you tell us a bit about um, how that is as a scientist and how that is emotionally for you? When you're in such close quarters with many wild animals, the boundaries between science and emotions completely blurs. Me personally, I'm a conservationist at heart first. I love watching wildlife. That's why I came into this field. So I didn't come into this field to make it as a career. It's my life, actually. Wildlife is primary. Everything else comes secondary. So emotions are always gets higher priority than science at some point of time, though science is extremely important. I'm emotionally connected to these animals and to the landscape they live in and the habitat we work on. So it's very important, I think, to have that emotional connect to the species you're working. That's what is going to drive you during your points where you're down. And that's what also makes you uh, sometimes hyper to, to do things which people think is sort of superhuman at some point of time. Like, for example, we convinced the government and we did one of the largest expansions of protected areas in, in India after the 1970s, between the years 2011, 2012, and 14. We added nearly a million acres of forest land to, to the protected area network. If you don't have an emotional connect to the landscapes and the species, doing this kind of job sometimes is lunatic. It's very important to have an emotional connection to the species you work on or generally about wildlife if you have to do such crazy things. Or even, you know, we have worked on mitigating fragmentation impacts of highways or uh, mining companies. All these high energy activities, only emotions and the love for the species will run it actually on the longer term. You mentioned in your book, you know, be ready and primed when you get politicians who you think are genuinely interested and you genuinely may be able to get some headway with. And so that's great. You harness the opportunities when you can. Can we hear a bit about that actual close examination of a leopard when it's sprawled out in front of you? 
the book, it's fascinating to hear about you even checking the pads. Can you tell us about that and the smell of the breath and what you sense from those sorts of things? Yeah, it's it's an absolutely fascinating moment. You get about 40 or 50 minutes when the animal is sedated and you get to closely examine the animal. You get to sometimes, you know, you check the body parts, which you could never see, for example, the insides of the tongue of a leopard. It's really like a sandpaper we used to smoothen the surface of wood. It's really raspy, you know. It's got hook-like barbs to take out the feathers of birds or to remove the hair from prey. And these are the kind of body parts you can never, ever imagine that you would, uh, how they feel like, you know, by touch. Or even the paws of a leopard, you know, you hold it in your hand. It's unbelievably emotional and beautiful moments you, you feel. And of course, the breath of the leopard is something, you know, you're so close to the animal. The animal is breathing and you are able to touch its um, canines. You're able to touch its belly. You, you can... Uh, <laughs> feel its tail. Uh, it's unbelievable. And also the claws, you know, because these animals have retractable claws. And you know how it works until, I mean, you won't know how it works until and unless you actually operate it, you know. You push the claw a little bit and you'll see how nicely it comes out of the paw in a, in a curved fashion. Then only you'll believe how stealthy this animal is and uh, when it requires how efficiently it can bring its claws out. I'll tell you, it's an absolutely magical moment when you're with a leopard and you hear its heartbeat. And then um, at times, yeah, you lose sense of uh, what's happening, but you're, you, you should be very focused on the animal because uh, its health condition is extremely important when it's sedated. I was speaking to a mountain lion, a puma a researcher, who said he did the same things with mountain lions and pumas. He said occasionally they actually forget to turn the radio collar on when they release it because they've been <laughs> so overcome with all the other things to do. That little incidental <laughs> moment of switching the power on. And so it just it goes off wearing some jewellery for a couple of years before it's intercepted again. Yeah, but you need to be extremely methodical and you need to take all the steps and then you tick off your checklist before you release give a antidote to the animal so that uh, you don't do such mistakes but yeah i agree you know people can get carried away with uh, when the animal you love so much and you're working on is right next to you it's very normal i think natural that you get carried away with it well let's talk about you observing them in the field because it's great that you do so much field work the times you experience lepers i imagine it is rare but when you've observed them yourself in the wild, what kinds of behaviours have you seen them exhibit? See, you always need not see them directly, but you just, even when you see their signs like a pug mark or their scat, there's so much excitement when you see it, you know. You feel like you're very close to the animal, you know. India is a place where you can get to see leopards quite often, not as often as I would have loved. But you still get to see them, at least in larger protected areas where large cats are slightly used to movement of people or tourists and other human uh, activities. Uh, you get to see them. Uh, there are places in, in uh, northern India, like places like Rajasthan, where you can actually go and see leopards, multiple leopards on the same day. I am fascinated by this stealthy, very secretive species, the leopard we all love, if they are in dimes and dozens and easily seen, I think you lose that passion and you lose that excitement of seeing that animal. Hearing them saw, you know, the call of the leopard is like sawing it. For example, two weeks ago, I have a piece of land inside a forest and uh, leopards come very close to the place where I stay near my house. Perhaps at some point of time, it's, it's even only 20, 30 meters. And they saw and sometimes I feel it's, is it right inside my house? And I'll tell you, that's some fascinating moments when the leopards are sawing in 20 or 30 meters away. And they can be so loud and so fascinating, the calls, uh, the sawing of the leopard is. Seeing and watching the leopard, you know, being very careful, very stealthy, because it's always afraid of other larger carnivores, the conspecific uh, carnivores like tigers and uh, doles. They're very careful. So they're not very open like tigers. They're very secretive and shy as well, even in areas where they're found in high densities and are used to tourists and uh, people's movement. 
but it's always fascinating to watch them roll over or if they are uh, spraying and i even watch them uh, hunt their prey and the way they can hunt and stalk uh, once i i saw uh, for over one and a half hours i observed a leopard which was sitting on a large ficus tree then it got off the ficus tree and it was moving in a particular direction which i didn't understand why it was moving in that direction and finally after walking for uh, about 2 kilometers i realized that it was actually trying to stalk a group of cheetah deer uh, also called as axis deer and i finally got to watch it kill the deer it all went through for over one and a half hours but watching this kind of behavior is just unbelievable how stealthy and secretive and uh, an efficient killing machine this uh, large cat is this spotted cat is well in terms of your encounters directly with leopards have you ever had a warning cough or a bluff charge i mean apart from the swimming pool incident which we'll come to later have you ever had any edgy moments close to leopards i've seen them at very close quarters but until and unless they have cubs and they feel threatened you are very safe from these large cats because they're very shy and they're very afraid of human beings they keep away from humans i've never feel in any way threatened by a leopard or even by tigers i've watched tigers at 10 meters on foot but never ever have i felt that threat you just feel very excited so your adrenaline is very high you can hear your heartbeat when the animal is so close to you especially when you are on foot but you never feel threatened and you know, large cats are very safe animals until and unless they're really prone manators could we talk about people's general awareness of leopards and their attitudes to leopards and say the average rural citizen in karnataka how aware would those people be of leopards would they experience them much in their lifetimes and what kinds of attitudes would they have towards leopards would they see it as a charismatic animal would they see it as a pest or would they see it as something to be wary of or just does it depend on their life situation you know leopards are very widespread species in this country you know i estimate we should have about 25000 leopards in india so they're very widespread so you'll even find them in large forest habitats you'll find them in scrub forests even smaller forest habitats or even whatever habitat that suits a leopard including some kind of plantation crops like uh, coffee uh, you find them in sugarcane fields you find them sometimes in maize fields yeah they're very adaptable and they're very flexible but people are generally tolerant towards nature and towards wildlife in this country you know because of socio cultural and sometimes even religious reasons people can tolerate them until and unless there is a severe impact on their daily lives or livelihoods if there's severe killing of livestock if there are injuries to people in some unfortunate incidences if there are deaths of people then certainly people don't tolerate them tolerance limits are also decreasing these days because of increased conflicts towards leopards people who live with leopards are very curious because they may not see them on a daily basis but they're uh, they're fascinated to see leopards but certainly when it impacts them especially lives and livelihoods the negative attitudes certainly kicks in and it's across all kinds of people from different socio cultural backgrounds rural urban everyone you know if they're impacted by wildlife species they tend to be more negative towards them back to the average rural citizen in karnataka if we can label somebody as such would some of those people go through their life never seeing a leopard yes there are tons of people you know millions of people who may never see a leopard or never experience a leopard in their lifetimes many of the urban people who have born and brought up in urban areas until and unless they go on a wildlife safari and if they are unlucky they will never see a leopard but otherwise as well you know there are areas in karnataka where there are no leopards yeah it's very possible that people may spend their entire lives without seeing a leopard and what about when you are aware that leopards are around through camera trap work or your field work but people don't appreciate that they're around do you feel you ought to tell them do you feel obliged to tell them there are leopards around or do you sometimes think well actually there's no issues here the leopards are behaving themselves and if i told people they might take actions which are not helpful so it's best to just keep it quiet 
do you ever get a tactical difficult situation like that in your work? If uh, people are not bothered by leopards, what I mean is if there's no conflict, if there's no uh, loss of livestock, they're generally very tolerant and uh, you can discuss with them about leopards, everything. And the mindset of people in southern India, especially in Karnataka, is also very tolerant towards fellow non-primate and even primate fellow beings of this on this planet. So it's not a serious issue until and unless, as I said earlier, it impacts their lives and their livelihoods. Uh, people are fascinated, they're tolerant, they're happy when wildlife are around. And many times I hear people saying it's also a life, so it has a right to live on this planet. And I think that's what the biggest positive thing is in Indian society, which drives wildlife in certain areas to such high abundances. I wondered if there was an issue that sometimes you were detecting leopards on camera traps near communities and near schools and you felt, "Uh uh-oh, this is difficult to tell people to break the news because they weren't aware of it, but they're living closer to leopards than they thought. So people are comfortable if you have to break the news that there are leopards closer than they thought generally, are they? Only in situations when there has been a conflict issue, like, you know, there are human deaths and other things. They're keen to know. um, They're very afraid, of course. There's no doubt about it. They would like to know the movement of leopards. They would pressurize the government to capture leopards. Yes, those situations, we try to keep the authorities informed. We also try to give tips to the local communities how to be away from uh, problems and uh, how to avoid leopards and being safe in leopard country and leopard habitats. In terms of the adaptability of leopards themselves, how much adaptation and variation do you see across the leopards that you've studied? Do you think leopards can vary more than we think, depending on their situation and their habitat and their diet? Yes, leopards are found in all kinds of habitats. You know, they're found in forests, different kinds of forest habitats, moist deserts, evergreen, every kind of forest habitat. They're found in scrubs, uh, scrub jungles. They're found in woodland savannas. As I said earlier, they're also found in man-made habitats like maize fields and coffee tea plantations, sugarcane fields. In all kinds of habitats, you find leopards. But our research has very clearly shown that leopards reach their highest occupancy where they find uh, large natural prey. So natural prey is also an important predictor of leopard presence. But because of their adaptability, wherever natural prey is not present in optimum numbers, they immediately shift towards livestock. Because research has clearly shown that leopards prefer prey of the size of about 23 kgs, which is also the size of goat or a sheep. Hence, leopard can shift towards livestock whenever natural prey is unavailable. And that is a situation when it leads to uncomfortable problems. What about the variation in the leopard size and form? Do you see much variation across their habitats and across your work and career observing and studying them? Or do you think they largely do fit the standard template? The subspecies in India is called the Panthera pardus fusca, and the size does not vary much. But I know from literature that leopards in South Africa are also sometimes very small, you know. Their body size can vary and can also be much larger than the Indian leopards. People also say that the German leopard is quite small and weighs much lesser than other species of leopards, while the Amur leopard looks very large because of its coat. Body size varies in different subspecies of leopards. The Persian leopard is also slightly smaller. Yeah, the body size varies as per environmental conditions and the habitat they survive in. Can we talk about one of the ways you survey leopards and that is trail cameras or camera traps and I find them a bit of a blunt instrument. I don't think they're as good as we might hope they would be. I mean I've got three out on the windowsill here drying out from the misty British winter weather. They need to come in and uh, (laughs) probably they will work in time but there's always a churn of misbehaving ones. Dealing with camera traps is quite a logistical issue but Before we talk about the strategy you use with camera traps when you're setting them out and surveying prospects for using them, what proportion of your work is influenced by camera trap work? How important are they in your research? 
extremely important, especially to understand the population of leopards. Camera trap is a big boon for us because they can be used to monitor naturally marked animals like leopards and tigers. Since the rosette on every leopard body is different, like the thumbprint on our fingers or on our thumb, it's very useful as a tool, as a scientific tool to understand population of leopards, then the variation in population over years. And also during uh, situations when, uh, like conflict situations, we are able to use camera trap to monitor individual animals or where do they move, their movement patterns. All those can be easily understood by using camera traps. And it's a very important tool for many of other wildlife species as well. And when you're starting afresh in a new area and you know that you're going to set up camera traps for leopards, how do you go about it? What sort of systems do you use and, and what sort of numbers and, and what sort of intervals for checking them? And do you use them in paired situations? See, large cats like tigers and leopards always love to move on trails or on forest roads, you know, the, the dirt tracks in the forest. So initially we go and do a recce to find out uh, leopard uh, signs like bug marks or like fecal matter or sometimes they scratch on trees. They urinate on trees to leave their scent mark. So these kinds of indirect evidences are used to understand occurrences of leopard in an area. Those become the preferred ports to tie a camera trap so that you're pretty sure that um, you're getting animal movement or leopard movement in that area. But it's a slightly more scientific when we actually put up all the camera traps. We try to ensure that every leopard or, for example, every tiger in an area has an equal opportunity to be captured in a camera trap. Of course, you know, leopards and tigers, they may avoid camera traps as well. But the initial way of setting up our camera traps is to find higher number of leopard or tiger signs. Those spots become our favored locations to tie camera traps. And we tie because the rosettes on the leopard's left flank and on the right flank are completely different. You need to set up two camera traps to identify an individual leopard. You're using them in paired situations, so both sides of the body are picked up? Yes, absolutely. What's the minimum number of cameras you'd use in one survey situation? Uh, it depends on the size of the habitat we are trying to study. It can vary, but it's also because these camera traps are quite expensive. Resource becomes a constraint if you're studying larger leopard habitats like perhaps 1,000 or 1,500 square kilometers, then you use a different approach to, you don't go and flood the entire area with camera traps. I wish I could do if I had the resources. In those situations, you carry out camera trapping in blocks so that you use your resources more efficiently. Do you find them frustrating, like I do, that they don't always capture what you think that might be there or you only get bits of an animal or they malfunction you know how efficient do you feel they are for the work you require ideally if you get the best pictures of complete flank pictures of tire leopards the most ideal situations but many times even if you get the, just their face or some parts of the body we can actually compare the rosettes and individually identify identifying leopards is slightly more challenging compared to a tiger. Tiger stripe patterns are very clear. Leopards, because they have so many numerous number of spots on their body, a bit more challenging than tigers. But at the end of the day, you, you certainly get good estimate using this. But of course, if the camera trap doesn't function properly, or if a particular individual leopard is trying to avoid a camera trap, statistical tools account for all of these things before it gives us estimates for population. Okay, and what's the greatest surprising factor you've had revealed to you about the life of leopards from camera traps? The fact that leopards are also polyandrous, you know, both males and females mate with multiple partners at the same time. And more importantly, uh, we have got animals which have moved several tens of kilometers from their natal home range, or even animals who have been adults but suddenly moving out of their natal home range or their established territories to a much farther area, which was surprising. Everybody thought leopards have small home ranges, but they can also tend to have large home ranges. One of the leopards I had collared, it's also part of the book, the chapter Understanding the Big Cats, a leopard called Benki. Benki means fire, which was named by my son 
by my young four-year-old son at that point of time. I don't know why he named it as Benki, but it suited its uh, character. Benki had a home range of about 141 square kilometers, which was surprising. You know, everybody thought leopards have very small home ranges. So our studies revealed that they also need large home ranges and large habitats to survive. What about cooperation and food sharing? I mean, some of the the work in Western states of America have have shown that uh, pumas are collaborating more and food sharing much more than we assumed. You know, we assumed that they were solitary largely and rarely got together and would be in conflict situations if they did. Are you seeing any signs that leopards are more collaborative in their lifestyles than we thought in your work? They certainly don't hunt like lions do in in a pride. Leopards are certainly solitary, but once we had three leopards, all three adults captured on the same location at the same time in a camera trap. So it may be one female, you know, being pursued by two male leopards, but generally they're not group animals. They like solitary life. I'm sure they enjoy their solitary life. When they're mating, of course, you find them in pairs for a few days, you know, three, four days, the same pairs moving around but otherwise they're generally largely solitary. And in terms of other field survey work that you do, Sanjay, what are you largely doing? Are you tracking for field signs or do you use any other technology and would you like to use things like scat detection dogs or drones and give them more resources? You know, what kinds of techniques are are in your toolkit? When the habitat you're trying to order, the study area is very large. When it runs into thousands of square kilometers, then you obviously cannot use uh, methodologies like camera trapping because it's very intensive. It's very resource consuming. You need a lot of manpower. So in those kinds of situations, we use another technique called as occupancy surveys, where you're basing your study entirely on leopard signs over larger areas. It won't give you the population estimates, but it will give you what proportion of an area is occupied by a leopard or why certain areas have higher occupancy while other areas have lower occupancy. So we use occupancy studies. Of course, we used to use radio coloring to understand leopard movement and their home ranges. And we continue to do our camera trapping. And perhaps our camera trapping work is one of the longest studies of leopards in the world. Certainly in India, it's the longest study on leopards, which has been carried out in the same areas year after year. So I'm very proud that we have the longest study of leopards happening in India in our area. Yes, that trend information is so valuable and to keep going with. Do you think that leopards in less dense areas have looser territories? If they're hemmed in, do they have more rigid territories? Does it work like that? Is it as simple as that? Are there so many variables in it? I don't have solid evidence about it, but we certainly see that even individuals who had established territories suddenly decide to move out of their territories and move far away from their natal home ranges or from their established home ranges. We don't have an explanation for that. It's not even animals being pushed out because they're also quite young. They're not certainly pushed out by younger individuals, but for some reasons which are not known to science, they suddenly move out and make long journeys to go and establish new home ranges. So these are all very interesting, but still understudied subjects in the field of leopard ecology. I also try to understand their uh, food habits by collecting their scat, their fecal matter. The next thing which we would really be interested in is to understand their genetics and also to see if they are inbred, you know, if leopards are inbred in certain areas. Because sometimes we see very high density of leopards in small areas, and those are the areas we would really like to see if they are inbred. I would also like to understand if leopards that live in amidst human habitations or amidst high human density, are they more stressed compared to leopards who live in natural habitats? In terms of the diet analysis, presumably you do the diet analysis by examining the scats, do you? If you do that, what kind of proportion of their diet are deer species? Is it the mainstay of their diet? It depends where they are found. If they are found in larger natural habitats with high density of prey, you'll find more deer species and uh, those kinds of larger ungulates. But if they are more in uh, human-dominated landscapes or in uh, habitats where uh, large prey is absent or are found in lower numbers, you'll find black-naped hare, you'll find livestock, 
you will find a host variety of other animals. There are studies which shows that leopards, if avian species and reptiles are included, would be consuming up to 200 species, you know, about 200 species form their part of their diet, actually. So it's very variable. It depends where they live. Looking at some of the, the puma, the mountain lion work in America, you, you get ones that individuals will sometimes just completely specialise on something and become quite a distinct consumer of a certain type of prey species in contrast to some of the others. Do you get that? Do you get sort of individuals specialising on something and get because they've got the knack for taking it? Since we don't do genetic studies on every individual leopard, we can't really correlate the scat sample to individual leopards until unless you do vast and long-term studies in an area. Unfortunately, I don't have an answer to your question on this. Yes, okay. Right. Well, I think it's time to move on to the compulsory question for Sanjay Gubi, the swimming pool incident. Mm-hmm. I guess you're ready for it every time. And we will put a link to a video clip of this with the podcast mm-hmm. website so people can see it if they haven't seen it before. Of course, I know you've become a, a celebrity for this incident when you try to <laughs> you help to recover the leopard trapped in a school by a swimming pool. But before we get on to your description of the actual events, could you tell us what it's like to have the media and all of these photographers waiting at the school gate and around the premises, sort of ready for some action? And you know you're going to be in the forefront of that action. If anything goes wrong with the exercise, you know, you're going to be for it or you're going to be at risk. And how does that feel? Do you feel that you're in a rather sort of callous situation where these people are there just sort of observing you and if you mess up you're going to be filmed and millions of people are going to see this on YouTube it must be an awkward moment for you is it yes crowd management is a serious challenge in India whenever large conflict prone species are found in high human dense area so it's always a challenge the crowd management including media becomes a challenge and uh, with social media and with the digital media it's a lot easier and much quicker that these kind of uh, visuals get distributed very soon. So yes, you're right, you know, you have to be extra careful because you need to do your protocol protocols, you need to follow them very carefully, otherwise the entire uh, eyes of all the media are on you. So yes, it sort of puts some extra pressure, but uh, you need to ignore it, you know, you need to focus on your job because Uh, That needs a lot more attention than what's happening around you. We do see on our YouTube feeds and on the web plenty of cases of sort of marauding stress leopards where they've been amongst people and they've got free out of a well or from sugarcane because they've been flushed out and they're in a stress situation and they're potentially striking out at people. And so that's what a lot of people get exposed to in their observations of leopards on the web. Do you think that's over-influential? And so people see, particularly in India, but also elsewhere, see that kind of behaviour in leopards and associate it with leopards too much and think, oh, leopards are these dangerous, snarly animals and don't see leopards as the sort of cautious, sly, stealthy things that they generally are. Yeah, it's, uh, it's true, you know, but unfortunately people don't learn the lessons They're very curious, you know, they're extra curious at some point of time. They're very nosy, in fact. Despite all the social media feeds, you see how dangerous these animals can be when they're stressed. People tend not to give caution and throw wind when these animals are there. They're very curious. And um, I'll tell you very honestly, mobile phone cameras are such a ban in such situations because everybody thinks Mike Nichols of National Geographic and tries to get images of the animal trying to get closer to it and to have a moment, the best moment of their life so that they can share it with their friends and family. Um, But unfortunately, they don't realize this act of theirs can put themselves into severe danger and also their friends and family or whoever is around. So yes, I know this camera issue and taking picture issue is a serious cause of stressing the leopard and also putting people who are working to safeguard both the animal and people under a lot of stress and threat as well. Yeah, well, can we go on to your personal experience of being at the school with a swimming pool and preparing yourself? And then obviously the leopard jumped the gun, as it were. Can you tell us what happened and how you felt about it as it happened? (laughs) 
It was a Sunday afternoon. I don't know, for some strange reason, a lot of these uh, incidences where leopards come into human habitations or into a school or into a house happens on a weekend. I don't know why that is, <laughs> but that has been a funny pattern for me for several years now. So it was a Sunday afternoon when I was at home, and then the forest authorities requested me to help them. When I landed in the school, you know, uh, there were hundreds of people who were standing, curious onlookers who were standing on the compound of the school. Everywhere, there were kids playing outside the school compound. So we had to first secure the perimeter of the school and also the building so that the leopard, if it came out, you know, people were safe. Because a lot of times, if animals, when they're stressed, they try to injure people, whoever comes in front of them. In those situations, when it goes to extreme conditions, animals are put down. So we want to ensure that People are safe, but also at the same time, animal is safe. One of the things we had to handle was the media, which was standing on the compound, and this leopard was inside a bathroom. Outside the bathroom was the swimming pool. Very strangely, there was two walls for this bathroom, and between these two walls, there was a space of about two, two and a half feet, and there was a ventilator which was broken. I expected if the leopard was sedated and if it got very stressed, it would come out of the ventilator. But we were also you know, very careful that if the leopard jumps out of the bathroom and it, if it would fall into a swimming pool and if it's sedated, it could be dangerous for the animal. But if it fell in between those two walls, it could also break its back and die. So we had to be extremely careful to safeguard the life of the animal. At the same time, we had to safeguard the life of people there. So we were talking to and convincing media to move away from the space, from that place, to allow us to work. And that's when um, I heard a big growl and I don't know, something went wrong and somebody perhaps disturbed the animal inside the building. And I turned around to see what was happening. And that's when I saw the leopard flying out of the ventilator. And then uh, I waited a little bit to see which direction it would take. But Within seconds, I saw that it was coming towards my direction. I had not yet planned my escape route for situations like this, because that was the next thing I would have done after convincing the media to move out of the place. But before I could do all that basic um, protocols, I could follow those basic protocols, the leopard was out. And I was also aware that there were school children, you know, young children playing cricket outside the compound. So we had to ensure that the leopard was kept inside the school compound and not it would not go out. But while trying to escape, I found a gate which um, I couldn't climb because of sharp edges on the gate. And that's when I, I thought, let me see where the leopard is. And I turned back and I saw the, these two beautiful eyes right next to me, below me. And a wonderful set of green eyes, I'll tell you. You know, you can't forget if you see a leopard at such close quarters. And uh, it jumped and caught hold of my buttocks, pulled me down, first bit me once and let me go, and then again bit me and pulled me down. And poor leopard must have felt like there was a huge sack of um, bricks perhaps falling on it. It rolled over, I rolled over, and then it again tried to escape out of the compound. If you watch the video carefully, you'll see that it was trying to calculate how to jump out. There were a few plastic chairs which was obstructing it and a few basketballs which were kept there. So it was immediately not possible for the leopard to jump out of the compound. That's when the veterinarian came uh, running towards me. He had the security of a wire mesh to hide behind to keep his safety. And I shouted at him, Arun, you know, go for the leopard, sedate it. And he was very sure that, sir, if I sedate it, if I tranquilize the animal, it would come back at you because its attention would get diverted. It would turn back to look from where, uh, from which direction the plunger came, and I would be seen by the leopard. But since we were very aware of children's presence outside, I said, you know, please go for it and shoot the sedation to the leopard. And he did it, and exactly like what Arun thought, the leopard came, went after him, but he had a secure mesh to protect him. So it turned its attention towards me and I was walking back, keeping an eye on the animal and I slipped and fell back. And that's where it jumped and scraped my tummy. It bit on my right above my heart. But luckily I had my mobile phone there and it just uh, damaged the mobile phone and my heart and lungs were saved. But of course, you know, it caught hold of my, it, it had already caused a lot of damage and it caught hold of my arm and it was like pulling it like it would do with a prey animal. 
And that's when I heard that it bit through my humerus bone. You know, it really was very painful. And until then, I had not felt the pain when it, you know, bit my buttocks or when it was scraping on my arm and biting my arm. But when it really bit and broke my bone is when I really felt the pain. And it was roaring, you know, even today I can hear the roar. Uh, it was roaring perhaps a few millimeters away from my ears, so I could hear it. And its eyes was perhaps, I don't know how many, five millimeters away from my eyes. And I could breathe it, you know, basically the the, the breath of the leopard going into my mouth and uh, my nose everywhere. But that's when I knew that I had to protect myself. And then I took all my courage and got up. It swiped at me once and I fell back and I again took all my strength and got up. And I just pushed the leopard with my left hand. I had a a pair of very strong binoculars in my right hand. And I had decided that uh, if it was required, I would use the binocular to protect myself. But all I needed to do was make myself look bigger. And I pushed the leopard with my left arm. I pushed away its neck. It let my arm go. That's why I didn't fight pulling out my arm because the entire arm was inside the between those four canines. And if I pulled it, I would perhaps lost all my flesh into the leopard's mouth. So it let me go. And then when I, uh, within a few seconds, somebody tried to shoot at the leopard uh, with all good intention, but it, the, the bullet whizzed past my leg. And then somebody threw a huge iron bar at me. Perhaps he or she was thinking that they're trying to help me with a weapon, but it just fell right at my foot you know, sparing my head. Otherwise, my head would have been broken up. So that day, I think I, I survived three times. And of course, after the incidents, uh, the experience in the hospital was much more horrendous. And I've written all about it in the book. Yes, I remember the book, you first went to a clinic where you felt that your wounds were not really being attended to correctly to prevent infections. But before we can get onto that, in that situation with the direct confrontation with the leopard, were you able to keep composed or were you panicking? Emotionally, what was that like? I have dealt with situations of captures of leopards in such situations a lot of times in the past. By nature, I try to do is to be very calm when you're in such situations. You need to really be very composed. And for some strange reason, believe it or not, that day I had some very strange feeling and I was extra composed. I was extra calm that day. I think that's what saved my life. I somehow feel a lot of times in such situations, people die out of shock and heart attack rather than the injuries caused by the animal. It can be elephant, tiger, or leopards, or any other lions or something like that. But I think it's very important to hold on to your nerves, to be very composed, to keep your heart level low mm. so that you're not very excited and you're, of course your adrenal is very high so you don't feel the pain at that point of time but yes at one point of time my family passed through my head you know my wife my son and my parents for a quick second they passed in front of my eyes and otherwise I was very super composed. So your experience really helped in that situation and it's funny in the book when you mention these missiles coming at you and they were just as dangerous as the leopard with people thinking they were helping yes. throwing you things to use but they they of course could have taken you out yeah absolutely the leopard's behavior in that situation it's not seeing you as a prey item it's not going at you because you're vulnerable prey in that situation is it panicking as well it's trying to take you out in case you're a danger. What is its behavior mode in that situation, do you think, in going for you? Animal would be very stressed, you know. Imagine yourself in the midst of thousand leopards, you know. You're one human being in the midst of thousand leopards. You know, how would we feel? I'm sure the animal here would have the same kind of panic situation when it is in amidst hundreds and hundreds of people who are shouting, trying to throw things at the animal. It's at very high stress levels for the animal. It's just trying to protect itself. It's not trying to injure animal. It's just trying to get away from that situation. I have my full sympathies for animals which are under such stressful conditions. And of course, some people die just from blood loss, don't they? Because if you get raked in that situation, the blood loss can be severe. Absolutely. That's why it's very important to have ambulances, I had requested all these things that day, but unfortunately, the authorities couldn't get it. I had requested that the swimming pool 
should have been made empty. There should have been an ambulance. There should have been laws, uh, acts enacted or implemented where people, more than five people, cannot gather. But unfortunately, the authorities didn't heed to all these things, which finally resulted in some difficult situations. Preparation and training is very important in these kinds of situations. Reflecting on that incident, have you learned any lessons from it that influence your work now, or is it just part of the process? You know, in a way, you move on, you know, you had a close confrontation, it was a close call, you dealt with it, you got the treatment, you had an arm injury for a long time, and I hope it's not still affecting you now. Incidentally, you're fully over the arm condition, are you? Uh, Not fully, you know, I don't think we can ever get back to have a natural arm anymore. There's still some issues with sensation, but also the movement of the arm. But that apart, I'm more more impressed by the animal strength. You know, I also know how a prey species feels like when it is caught by a large cat like a leopard. The amount of strength these animals have under the canines is just unbelievable. But at the same time, I feel a lot more sympathetic towards people who are affected by human wildlife conflict. It's not just the injury. It's not just one day's hospitalization or a few days of hospitalization that's going to cure them. There are a lot of post-hospitalization issues, the support they would require, both the physical, mental, psychological, and medical support they would require. Perhaps at some point of time, you know, months after the incidents or sometimes even years after the incidents. So that has also motivated me more towards working to get support uh, from the government for people who have been injured or gone through difficult situations by wildlife. You know, even today I was talking to a very senior official in the government about a person who's been partially handicapped, physically handicapped due to an elephant uh, trampling him inside the forest. So I'm more motivated to do those kinds of things in the interest of both wildlife and people. Very good. Then the surrounding communities to those people become, I think, more aware that their interests are listened to and they might be a little bit more sympathetic when issues happen, I guess. So if we can just finish off on sort of land use policy and development pressures affecting India and, and leopard habitat. And in the book, you, you mention about the quarrying of some of the rocky habitats that um, leopards would like. Short term, that must affect uh, leopards, because I guess if some quarries become eventually derelict when they're worked out, leopards are going to reclaim them to some extent. Yeah. And just the road building and the roads through habitats, especially at night. Can you just give us a bit of an overview about what kinds of land use pressures um, and development pressures are affecting leopard habitat? Yeah, one is the total loss of habitat for various reasons. It could be for agriculture. It could be for construction of infrastructure, and it could be because of uh, extraction of natural resources like granite or iron ore or manganese ore or anything else like that, because it leads to total loss of habitat for the species. And when these lose their home, they're forced to move into areas which are suboptimal, like agricultural fields, where they tend to hang on because they're, they're hardy species. They hang on for a while before they can blink off from an area. That's when serious issues like conflict happens. They start preferring livestock to natural prey because natural prey is no more available or available in less numbers. And they survive in habitat wherever they can hide during the daytime and uh, move during after it is dark. And that's not a very good situation. There's also a lot of mortality of leopards due to vehicular accidents. A recent paper also showed Leopard, lot of leopards dying uh, due to wire snares, you know, which are set to catch prey to protect crops. For example, you know, protecting crops against wild pigs or wild boars has been one of the important reasons. About 80% of the leopard mortality in wire snares was due to this reason that people were trying to protect their crops from wild pigs. And leopards happen to be accidental victims of this particular issue. So leopards face multiple threats. Uh, loss of habitat, loss of natural prey, direct persecution of leopards for their body parts and pelt. Also retaliatory killing. A lot of places people are are killing leopards in retaliation because of conflict. It's a grim situation for them, unfortunately. But if we did the right things now, I'm sure India will continue to have good leopard population in the future as well. 
if leopards themselves were granted one wish to make their lives more comfortable in India, what do you think their priority would be? I think one important thing is this miscommunication by certain sectors of people who pose that leopards live happily, you know, in quotes, in high human dense areas. Our research very clearly showed that intensity of snaring of leopard death due to snaring increased once human population crossed a density of about 225 people per square kilometers. Yes, these animals are found in areas there is high human density, but they also face a lot of threat. But unfortunately, this kind of narrative has brought more threat to the species itself rather than protecting it. So I wish this narrative gets a more fair evaluation that leopards live happily in high human dense areas, you know, because that's creating a lot of problems to leopards, both directly and indirectly. And of course, you know, natural habitats is what leopards are always the most safest in. So if I would ask a leopard, I'm sure he or she would say that I want my home back. And it's a healthy ecosystem, which is their key home which gives them a better health and a smaller territory often, presumably. Yes, absolutely. This territory issue is variable depending upon where the leopard survives, what amount of prey species is available. I had collared a very young male leopard, which was using a smaller area of about 20 square kilometers, unlike the large leopard Benki, which used to have a home range of about 141 square kilometers. So it's very variable. Unfortunately, we have very few studies that has looked at uh, movement patterns of leopards using radio collars in India. I wish more such studies can be done. We're petering out, uh, Sanjay, and I'm very grateful for all of this. I'm sure listeners have been fascinated by it, and we value your time and experience. So thank you. I briefed you that we tend to have a word of the week and we try to introduce a relevant and interesting word into the agenda. And I think the one we've asked you to do is this Sanskrit word, which may give a hint as to one of the potential origins to the leopard terminology. Could you introduce the word and explain it? It's called dwipin. You know, dwipin is the Sanskrit word for leopard, which actually means an animal having spots like islands. You know, it's got a nice etymology, where the animal is explained using the rosette pattern on its body, which is like an island. That means it's a solid patch on the body of the leopard. But there's also another Sanskrit word called pradaku. But the dwipin is much more apt for a leopard. The word leopard is actually of Greek origin, you know, Greek compound leon, which means lions, and pardons means a male panther. And um, it reflects that it's a hybrid of a lion and a leopard during the classical era. The scientific name Panthera pardus is perhaps derived from Latin, but there are other alternative theories that argue that it is derived from Indo-Iranian words of Sanskrit. So leopard's uh, etymology in local language is very, very interesting. For example, in in Indonesia, the black leopard has a completely different uh, word. You know, the normal leopard is called Harimau Bintang or Makan Tutul while the black leopard is called as Harimau Kumbang or Makan Kumbang. So it's got interesting names. Dwipin, of course, is the Sanskrit name. Many of the English names have come from Sanskrit for large cats, like cheetah is supposed to also have come from Sanskrit. The original word is supposed to have been Chitraka. So yeah, Dwipin is an interesting word. And leopards and cheetahs are completely different with their rosette pattern on their body. Cheetahs have solid, round spots on their body. Leopards have rosette patterns, sometimes blotches. Sometimes they're not solid blotches, but blotches with spots in it. In some of the photographs involved in your work, you occasionally get a leopard with a rosette that looks a bit like a jaguar's rosette with a dot in the middle. Normally, leopards have an empty space within the island rosette, and it's the jaguars that have the dots in the middle. But occasionally, you get a dotted rosette in a leopard. Yeah, especially in the larger ones. I've seen several pictures, camera trap pictures of leopards in different parts of the world. And it seems to be quite unique to India as well. Sometimes they look like jaguar spots, you know, jaguar rosettes on the jaguar as well. But this is normal mostly in large leopards, unlike in the smaller ones. Okay. I was interested in your book to see 
the names for the Javan leopard and the Javan black leopard. And in fact, we did it on Word of the Week in an earlier podcast in this series because I looked up what it meant literally, the Javan leopard word, and it actually literally means tiger beetle. Yeah. <laughs> and I wondered if the beetle bit was the black iridescence, the black oily shell you can get to some beetles. And that black iridescence is also on the black leopard, and, and that's the connection. But need to ask somebody from Java and Indonesia, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting facts about the names of the species itself, and it's a completely different but fascinating field altogether. I agree with you, Rick, on it. Yeah, thank you for that. If you had a budget for a new piece of technology, drones or whatever, what extra bit of technology that is costly that would you really like that would help to advance your work? Or do you feel that it's actually boots on the ground and field survey techniques and old school tracking is actually just needed and it's a resource intensive work and and a lot of technology just can't overtake the need for that? I would still stick with the old conventional radio callers to understand leopard movement. But any time, you know, if I were given, given a choice between studying the species, if there were limited resources, studying the species or conserving the species, I would certainly select the latter. You know, conserving the species should get top priority. I would put my bet on conserving the species if the resources were limited. Radio coloring is always a fascinating thing because you get to learn a lot more. And of course, camera trapping also gives us a lot of insights. Even recorded a large mammal, the rattle or the honey badger, for the first ever time in our in our state. And nobody knew the existence of this particular animal. And we have also recorded range extinction of species like wolves and uh, chinkara, which is an antelope, or a small animal called as the brown mongoose. So yeah, camera trapping is also amazing to use to, to study animals, not just the leopard, but a wide variety of animals. But always my fascination and interest has been calling these animals. Again, those resources for community engagement, because community engagement influences people, doesn't it? Let's them have more influence directly. Getting people on side and getting them to understand is so crucial, as I know that you've got a lot of experience in. You know, working to ensure the safety of the animal, the conservation of the animal, and also safety of people, to safeguard the livelihoods of people is also very, very important, both from the perspective of the people, but also from long-term conservation perspective of the animal, because higher animosity always leads to retaliation and lower tolerance and also a kind of hatredness towards wildlife conservation itself. So it's very important that both factors are given equal chance. Sanjay, thanks ever so much. We'll put links to the books, your tiger book, your leopard book, and the swimming pool incident on the website. Um, Now, if people want to just look up your work on the web for themselves, where should they go to for that? They can Google up or they can even go into a website called holemati.org. Holemati.org also gives a lot of information about our work. And we'll put a link to that on our podcast website for this edition as well. Good luck with the future. I hope you manage to pursue a lot of those agenda points that you mentioned and uh, we'll look out with interest to future progress. And we wish leopards well in India. And uh, thank you very much for coming on Big Cat Conversations. Thank you for inviting Rick. And I thank all the listeners for having listened to our experiences in India about leopards. I hope you know some of them would be fascinated or would be motivated. I hope they get motivated to do their bit for wildlife conservation, not just for leopard, for any wildlife, either in India or in any other part of the world, that would fulfill the whole objective of writing this book, Leopard Diaries, The Rosette in India. Thank you, Rick. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm sure we'll hear some overseas experience again before long. For example, we do plan to have discussions on mountain lion research and mountain lion management issues from North America, especially when those cats, cougars, pumas, mountain lions, cause issues in and around residential areas. So more overseas lessons and examples will be on our podcast schedule coming up. 
Also coming soon will be another look at the Exmoor Beast sightings from the 1980s because we'll be speaking to someone who was growing up in a family that was actively pursuing a black panther on their farm on Exmoor and they experienced sheep attacks believed to be from that cat. That family never had any attention from the press despite the commotion going on around them and the media frenzy at that time around Exmoor. Our guest did see another big black cat in the region 15 years later, so the Exmoor Beast Revisited is coming soon. Meantime, next edition, it's Big Cats Predating Deer, which is our focus. We'll be speaking to a witness who watched a black panther manoeuvre into position and then chase and dispatch a roe deer. That was in Somerset in December, just gone. We'll hear about what happened and how the resulting deer carcass was later found and examined. And with another deer stalking case coming soon, hearing from a witness, and that featured a chocolate brown coloured panther like cat, and that one's from Gloucestershire. Okay, we are signing off now, so thank you all for listening. And if you'd like to get in touch, email me at rick at bigcatconversations.com. There are always references for each episode on the Big Cat Conversations website, those are on the references and links page. Thanks again to our guest Sanjay Gubby. Links to his books are on the website along with a video of key moments from the leopard attack incident that we've just heard about. Look forward to being back soon. Take care everyone and bye for now.